0: We have a special guest with us today, uh, 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 Doug and Cheryl Scheibel. Uh, they are with New Tribes mi- 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 Mission. I got to hear Doug speak several years ago, and and uh, we we're wanting to have have a day where we could concentrate on, mi- on missions, so we asked Doug a few months ago to see if he could... Uh, Come and be with us, and it worked wor- worked out that, that that he could, and so we're thrilled to have them with us. I uh, think the kids down in the youth group got to, got to hear from uh, Doug um, th- th- this morning already, and uh, we're really look- looking forward to what he has to share with us. They've come from Wichita, Kansas. Uh, they began their their, their ministry uh, in Papua New Guinea. Many years, years ago, and a- after some years there, they came back to the States, and he has been with New Tribes Mission, still can continue to, to work with them uh, in help in hel- helping to re- recruit folks for the, mi- for, for, for the mission field and to, e- to educate church- churches in what it means to be involved in uh, the, the work of the ministry locally and worldwide. So it's a real thrill to have you guys with us. Cheryl, you know you're not going to get away with just sitting there, so why don't we get it over with? Why don't you stand up and everybody can see, see you. Yeah, Doug, go ahead. Stand stand, stand with her. It's Doug and Cheryl.
1: Well, thank you all very much. Uh, Cheryl leaned over to me and says that's one of my favorite songs that the kids were playing there, so that made it good for us. Um, i tell you... Um, Always, when thinking about what you're going to share with people, you know, and especially with the new group, people that we uh, don't know very well other than in the Lord, uh, we just try and figure out what it is that we want to share that's going to um, educate people. I think that's what I look at myself more as more an educator. I like to help people think through the implications of what they're doing or help them to think through um, just things that we feel are important for people to know that they may or may not know. Uh, with Mark and Bonnie, we had supper last night And they were sharing with us about your, uh, your program that you have here For uh, just helping to train future missionaries within the church And the program that they have to go through And I'll tell you what, people like us in New Tribes and other missions We would just die to have churches like that doing it all the time That's the point As a matter of fact, in our what we would call our E1 training We have E1, E2, and E3 The E stands for equipping and the E1 portion is the local church getting the missionary, getting the person ready for whatever it is the Lord wants them to do, and the second part of E1 is the mission agency helping them to do the specific ministry that they're going to be doing, and the kind of work that we do. For those of you that may or may not know who what New Tribes Mission is, we work in uh, very remote areas of the world, traditionally in jungles, but not exclusively. We're going into places where there is no written language. Uh, they uh, never had a Bible, uh, preferably they've never heard the Word of God. So we're going into very, very remote areas, and we're going out there to live and uh, to uh, start the process of, of seeing a church brought to maturity. But in order to bring a church to maturity, you have to know what a mature church is. And we spend a lot of time in our training defining uh, what that is. So we uh, ask people to have a minimum of a two-year Bible degree or two years of Bible education, that you know we would be in agreement with as far as the, uh, the doctrine and everything. And then even after that, there's, a minute, there's just two years of, of uh, missionary training that we're gonna spend teaching people how to learn a language that's never been written down, how to hear that, to translate to, to uh, literacy and all these different things because there are certain things that we feel are non-negotiable. So uh, just to start back a little bit, a little history of us, Cheryl and I uh, grew up in Wichita, Kansas. That's our home area. And uh, we, had, we got married in 1972. And neither one of us were believers. And we'd been married for about five years. And then we uh, both became believers. And a year later, we started Bible school with the intent of being missionaries. Um, I guess I felt like Paul did. I said, what would you have me to do? You know, what, what is there, what's hindering me from doing this? And so uh, we started Bible school uh, a, a year later. Went through New Tribes Bible Institute. Then we went through our mission. Uh, what we used to call back then was boot camp. And I was showing a little bit of that to the youth uh, today, how we'd go out there and live in the woods for six weeks at one point, uh, build our own homes, build all our own furniture, build our stove, uh, do all the things, just live out there. We had to hand wash all the clothing, row across a lake just to get fresh water uh, to drink and so on. So we were doing all these things, but the idea was that when we go out to the tribe, it isn't that we would live that way forever, but we would be there like that for a time until we got our house built. So I thought maybe it'd be good to kind of, show you some of that and so I want to start with that process. Uh, Cheryl and I worked in Papua New Guinea. Uh, right there where you see the arrow pointing is a place called New Britain, and that's on the southwest side of New Britain and a place called the Ottawa Islands. And those Ottaway Islands were a group of people called the Solong, just like Solong. We went the other way, that type of Solong. So uh yom Yom kagati Lokamala and basically I just said, you guys don't have a clue of what I'm saying, do you? <laughs> and that, that's how we would say that in our tribal language. So we had to learn how to speak and think and, and understand how people were uh, hearing what they were hearing. So we started that process way back in uh, January of 1991. But before that, we actually uh, went over to this area of the world for those of you that may or may not know where uh, Papua New Guinea is at, that little uh, piece of land down there in the lower left-hand corner is Australia, so that will give you a frame of reference of where we lived. Um, we uh, we worked over in this area. This was where we worked. Um, the color isn't quite as good as I want, but I'll tell you what, it was pretty impressive. My poor, Our poor children had to grow up out there. Uh, Yeah, they had, after they got done with school every day, they had to go out hunting and fishing and doing all the things that just other kids get to do all the time also. Um, Now, they went out there, they saw whales, they saw killer whales, they saw dolphins and flying fish and stingrays and barracuda and sea tortoise, and you name it, they saw it. Basically, SeaWorld came to them. And so they got to see this, and this is the environment that they grew up with. And uh, believe it or not, they did not come back with all these mental issues. Uh, after having lived there a good portion of their lives. When we went to New Guinea, they were 10, 8, and 6. And then when we moved out into the tribe, they were 12, 10, and 8. But uh, we went over there for a purpose. And if I was to to give you a visual picture of what we do as a mission, it would be this. This is why we exist. Uh, We want to go over there and see churches brought to maturity. They're carrying on the work of the ministry. And this man isn't up here just teaching uh, the people, he's teaching them how to teach others to teach others. And it starts that way from the very beginning when we walk into that tribe, always with the mindset, how are we gonna train these people to train others to train others? Always looking down about four generations ahead of us. And that takes a different strategy than just getting somebody to raise their hand and make a commitment or uh, a proclamation of some sort. But it all starts somewhere and it usually starts in a place like this. In your case, it starts one step earlier. It starts here at the local church. Many churches don't do this. They don't train their people to be missionaries or whatever God wants them to be. They just teach. And that's all they do. And kind of hope by osmosis they'll get it. But you're intentional. And that's what's really, really good. Just like we feel we're intentional when we move out into a tribe. We want to go there and see something accomplished that we feel is what the Lord wants. So you've got this. In this case, this is one of our Bible schools up in Wisconsin. Uh, your youth pastor, I noticed he's from the Milwaukee area. And we got the laughing. And, uh, you know, I'm always amazed at the connections that we make. I was sitting down there talking to him. He says he's from Wisconsin. Oh, really? Where at? He says, oh, Milwaukee area. Oh, I says, we lived up in Waukesha for a year and a half. I said, yeah, when we went to Bible school uh, in January of 1979, we drove in and they had 50 inches of snow on the ground. And it kept snowing until there was 84 inches of fallen snow. That was impressive. i tell you what. Those people know how to drive. Let me tell you, down here in Lubbock, I mean, you start sliding just on the forecast of snow. you know. But up there, I mean, they live, eat, and breathe that stuff. And it's just funny. I was like, wow, these people really know how to drive. So we went up to Bible school, and we spent a year and a half there uh, just getting good Bible training. But I told the students in Bible school, I said, you know, we never went to Bible school to get a good Bible education. I said, we went to be missionaries. And we figured that was the first step, is to get a good Bible education. But that was never our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is what are we going to do with it? What's the point of having these things? So this is what we wanted. We wanted to start out, and I think here you've got the best step. You can train people to whatever it is the Lord wants them to do. We don't know. That's between a person and the Lord, what it is that he wants them to do. But how can we train people so that they're ready for that, whatever the Lord has for them? So when we get out there in a place like this, what we're wanting to see is um, um, how are we going to get between that one point and the other? How are we going to go from the Bible training all the way to a mature church? And that's the key, isn't it? The next step. So if you were going to ask, and this let's make this a little bit interactive. If you wanted to see a church brought to maturity, what's the first thing you would need to know? Anybody? Their language. What else? I'm sorry. Can't hear. Culture. Anything else? How to walk with God. One more and then I'll I'll ask a question. What's that? Do they have a Bible in their language? Okay. Now, if I wanted to go out into a tribe and I wanted to see an X73 established, what's the first thing you would ask me? What's next, 73? Okay, now let's ask the question again. If you want to see a mature church established out in the tribe, what's the first thing you need to know? You're good. You're really good. That's right. What is a mature church? And so there are things that you're going to have to define that are non-negotiable, things that are going to have to be in place in order for a church to reach maturity. And we've already talked about some of those things. What non-negotiable things would you say what non-negotiable thing would you say needs to be in place in order for a church to reach maturity? A Bible. So in other words, you have a translation, right? It did come up, didn't it? Oh, no, it didn't. Sorry, I was one slide behind. You need to have a translation. But what does having a translation assume? They can read. That's right. They're literate. That assumes a literacy program. That assumes a written language. That assumes I know how to put that into a written language which assumes I've been trained to do that. So you pull one of those steps out of there, and what are you going to have? You're not going to have a church that's going to have equipped teachers. You're going to have... Because, listen, it's important for them to be literate, and it's important for them to have a translation. The reason why, as long as they remain illiterate, they will always be dependent upon someone else for truth. And we want to give them something that's more authoritative than we are, don't we? I don't want to be the head honcho in that tribe. I want God to be the head honcho. And that's the point. So we need to have something where they have direct access to the Lord himself. And the only way they can have that is if they have the Word of God. You know, that's what the Bereans faced, wasn't it? When Paul came in to their place and he said, you know, he started teaching them the Word of God. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind that the Spirit of God was using the Apostle Paul to teach them the truth. But, you know, the guys sat there and they said, You know, Paul, I think what you're saying sounds good, but we need to check this out. And that's why Luke would say, and these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. In other words, the Bereans were teachable, but they weren't gullible. And so they sat down and they said, listen, there's something that's more authoritative than the spoken word, and that's the written word. That's why it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we have to go to that and find those things out. So we want to find out, Uh, how they can uh, uh, mature, but we have to have these things in place in order for them to reach maturity. But there's also another aspect, and that is teaching. And so, oh, oh, let me back up on that. I want to show you a a short video here, a couple of minutes, about two and a half minutes, of a tribe who's hearing, well, this particular village has heard the gospel, and they've been saved for about an hour. And I want you to hear what they're telling you after what we're going to talk about here in a minute. Oh, sorry,
2: and let me
3: poor, Paraluiaання Hair,
2: ag Hairy 对我 used to be Na ani apui Ese I want not me. you me. me. It me to
3: me.
2: me. to Me to
1: Not bad for a guy that's been saved for an hour, is it? No, but they're telling you what they're thinking. But there's, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, about how, why they could have that kind of an understanding. Everybody has a worldview, no matter who we are. You, me, everybody. The tribal people, they evaluate their world around them from a particular set of standards. I trust that our goal is to the greatest degree possible, we're evaluating what we see here and here through the Word of God. That we try and evaluate it from there so that we can have a true understanding of that. And our tribal people have an animistic worldview, and it kind of is what they're having to deal with. And uh, that worldview right there uh, is what they have. They have an animistic worldview. An animistic worldview means that they're trying to look at their world around them, make it sense within their own cultural framework. And so we're going in there into that type of a thing. What we're wanting to do is see this animistic worldview, and we're bringing in this biblical worldview And as we come in there, there's these two worlds and they're diametrically opposed to one another. They are not something that you can melt and join together and make one fit the other. A biblical worldview is, by nature, uh, contrary to uh, uh, any other worldview. Because any other worldview has to deal with self. And self-evaluates it, makes it work, makes it fit. So what we're trying to do is see that animistic worldview emphatically displaced with a biblical worldview. But how do we go about doing that? So I thought what I'd do here is show you a little bit about what we're trying to do. Now, in an animistic worldview, and I'm going to give you an example of that here, is there's there's these uh, three kind of levels of existence. There's the world of the Creator. Now, the reason I wrote the Creator up there nice and small is because that's what the Creator is. To them, irrelevant. They can't contact the Creator. The Creator doesn't talk to them. They uh, just don't know what to do with it, so it might have started everything out. It could be a man, a woman, a child, an animal. Who knows what their belief system is? But whatever it is, the the Creator uh, doesn't care. Sounds a lot like America, doesn't it? A lot of people think God doesn't care. So uh, then there's this physical world where they live, and that's where all the data comes in. Everything that they can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. A boat capsizes. People die. They're trying to figure out why. A, A volcano explodes. There's an earthquake. All these things... They're trying to evaluate and make sense of. And so they're, that's where they live. But there is an intermediate world of spirit beings that need to be manipulated and controlled in order to gain some benefit for self or to keep themselves from harm. Now, the reason I... Uh, I those lines that are in there really don't have any significance. They're just kind of for the sake of um, illustration. But it's all mixed together in an animistic worldview. So there's not this world and that world. They're both together. And they're trying to make sense and make their lives fit in that whole system somehow. So to give you an example, here's a woman with a sick child. You can't probably see it very well, but the woman's got a sick child. And let's just say for the sake of argument, Cheryl and I move out into a tribe. We haven't been there very long. We don't know the language. We don't know the culture. We don't understand how things are working. But the woman comes up and says, my child is sick. What do I do? She says, well, let's check your child out. So we diagnose the child. We notice that it has a real high fever check its ears, notice they're both inflamed real bad. So we tell the lady, he says, listen, he says, you need, your child needs some medicine. And so we know that the baby needs some antibiotics. And so we give her the prescription, tell her to take these, this, many, this much medicine so many times a day for the next five, seven, 10 days, whatever it is for children. And so she goes in, let's just say for the sake of argument, she does that, she follows the instructions. What do you think is gonna happen after about three, four days? child's going to start getting better, isn't it? What do you think she's going to do? Stop giving the medicine. Why does that sound familiar somehow? <laughs> Judging by the laughter, I think I know where we all fit in that category. So that's right, the ch- that she stops giving the medicine. What's going to happen to the child? It's going to get worse. And what's her conclusion about the medicine? Didn't work. Bingo. See, you guys are good. So you've got this child now that has this problem. And So what does she do? She goes to her local shaman, sorcerer, witch doctor. says, listen, I went to the missionary. The missionary tried to give me some medicine. And it seemed to be working, but then after about three or four days, you know, we had this problem. So he says, you should have come to me first. I'm the sorcerer here. I know all the spirits of the forest and the river and the trees or whatever it is. I know who they are. And I know what they can do. You should have come to me first. And she says, well, what do I do? He says, well, let me check out and see what diagnose what the problem is. So the shaman does the sorcerer, uh, um, witchcraft or divination to figure out what the problem is. He comes back and he says, listen, you violated our customs. You didn't do what you were supposed to. You didn't pay the spirit of the reef or the tree or the forest or whatever. And now those spirits are coming back and harassing your child. And she says, what do I do? He says, well, you have to make the proper sacrifice. And that always includes payment." And so do the proper sacrifice. And let's just say for the sake of... Well, they do the sacrifice. Sometimes the child gets better. Sometimes it doesn't. Now, I'm not saying that what what they did had any effect on the child whatsoever. All I'm saying is if the child gets better, it is perceived to have worked. If the child gets worse, it is perceived not to have worked. Let's say for the sake of argument, the child gets worse. She says, what do I do? He says, hey, this is beyond me. We need to get a specialist in here So what do they do? They go find another sorcerer that is perceived to be more powerful. So they do the whole thing with that uh, sorcerer again. He does his divination to find out what the problem is. He comes back and he says, listen, this isn't your problem. He says, there's an enemy over in another village. They're working sorcery on you. They're contacting the spirits and the spirits are harassing your child. She says, what do we do? He says, well, you have to make the proper sacrifice. Once again, sometimes that, that works and sometimes it doesn't and it's a matter of perception. So that's what life is like for tribal people. This is the most feared thing there is, is sorcery, because they know they don't know how to deal with it, they just know what happens, and every time they see something happening, they're wondering why and how can they get out of it. So that's what they're dealing with. So now we're back to this animistic worldview that these people have, not only about their children, but about their gardens, about everything in general. Our people used to throw a a, um, little shell, as we'd be traveling out on the ocean, and we went past a reef, they'd toss a shell out beside it. Well, initially, I thought they were just having fun like we did as kids, be out on the lake and toss a rock overboard to see how far it would go down before it disappeared. disappear. But I thought that's what they were doing. But after a while, I noticed a pattern, and I, noticed that, I asked them about that, and they said, well, we're paying the reef spirit. I said, really, why is that? And he says, because if we don't, he's going to get angry at us, and he's going to cause a storm to come up, capsize the boat, and kill us. So I said, oh, okay. So what do you think was being reinforced every time a storm came up, a boat capsized, and people died? It was just reinforced that this is what's happening. They didn't do the right things. So anyway, that's what it was kind of like, and it's like that all the time, whether it's about their gardens, whether it's about children, sickness, whatever it is, there's always this cause and effect that's happening in place. So this animistic worldview has to be uh, displaced by a biblical worldview And what you're not wanting to do is that. You're not wanting to blend them. Anywhere where those two are together is not good. Because now you're starting to sit down and equate what they believe with what the Bible says. That they're both valid belief systems. And let me show you a picture I took in India. I was there in 2005 and someone told me about this church. And I I said, you've got to take me out there. I've got to get a picture of it. And this was the picture. I, I showed this to Indian believers Uh, missionaries over there from India and I showed them this picture and this is what they saw. I showed them that picture and they all went, they made Christ a Buddhist? They said, that is nothing more than a Buddhist with a European head on top of it. It says, everything in there screams Buddhism. And that's syncretism. That's where the beliefs are blended. And so that's what happens. And many times... uh, that can come about sometimes unintentionally because we don't know the language, we don't know the culture. That is probably where the biggest danger comes in. Uh, people ask me, you know, I speak pidgin English too, so suppose me like talk talk one time, you pala, na by me talk all same. Now me can talk to you one pala story, name belong, man belong, this pala story, I'm Jonah. Now Jonah, i me stop along one pala, I'm only call him Joppa. That's all behind, God. He you like talk talk one time, I'm me talk all same. Jonah, me like you go along another pala, hop. name belong, this pala, I'm Nineveh. Tell us how Johnny took, oh, no God, me no go, and then run away. See, you're starting to pick up already, aren't you? It's not a hard language to learn. I can Probably you can have it mastered in three months, four months max, if you're living in country and with people all the time. And people say, wow, so if you know Pidgin English, he said, why don't you just give them the message in Pidgin English so you can get it to them quicker. I tell him, he says, it's because I don't want to do what I call Beverly Hillbillies evangelism where you've got the Clampets and the Drysdales speaking the same language, but neither one understands the other one. And why? Because they're both evaluating the same words from two different perspectives. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to make sure that they truly understand the message that they're hearing. And that's going to take time. So that's what's happening there. So you've got this animistic worldview. You've got this biblical worldview. And here's what you want to accomplish. You know this from the day one is you want to see the animistic worldview decrease, the biblical worldview increase, and eventually one gets displaced by the other. Now, probably nobody ever gets all of their old worldview completely displaced, uh, see, uh, in, included. We, we try to to the greatest degree possible. But there are things that we do that are cultural that sometimes we just don't even realize are cultural. Uh, they're not wrong. Uh, they're, just, they're cultural, that's all. And if we admit that, that's fine. Um, what was I just thinking of? I, um, I, anyway, so what we're trying to do, the way we go about doing this. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument, I've learned the language, I've learned the culture, I understand. And the reason I, we learn the language is so we can communicate a message clearly. But the reason we learn the culture is we want to know how they're interpreting the message that they're hearing. Because it doesn't do you good any good to, uh, to communicate a, a good message but they don't understand it or they misinterpret what they're hearing. See, our people out there in the Solong tribe, they had had a lot of religious influence before we ever got there. Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans, Seventh-day Adventists, even Jehovah's Witnesses had been there, mainly because they're coastal people. And they always get reached first by somebody. So they're sitting there. And when we walked into this tribe, we were shocked at how well they knew the Bible stories. I mean, you could name a Bible story and bang, 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 they tell it to you, and you'd be stunned at how much they knew. And if I'd have left it at that, that, that's where it would have been at. But as we started getting into the language and the culture of the people, we started realizing how they were interpreting those messages. They thought that Jesus Christ was somebody who came right before World War II. And he came to the western ends of our islands, into the Maliu tribe, in the village of Gi. And when he came into the village of Gi, uh, there was a big ceremonial dance going on at this wedding, and he got involved in this dance and did such a good job that all the women started to desire him. As a result, all the men got jealous, and they said, when he gets done, we're going to kill him. So they waited for the dance to finish. He walks up on this volcanic mountain by the village of Gee. The men followed him up there, and then they killed him, and they buried him. But they didn't bury him just any old way. They buried him perpendicular to the village, and that's what the symbol for the cross means. Now, as good Melanie Park uh, members here, do you believe they could be saved understanding the message like that? Oh, come on, a little more head movement than that. Yeah, okay. No, of course not. But that's how they were interpreting what they were hearing. When they heard about the marriage feast to Cana, they thought, well, it must be like one of our marriage feasts because it doesn't really tell a lot about what went on there other than Christ changing the, the water to wine. And When they heard about Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and other women ministering to Christ, their thought was, why would our women hang around with a man? It's because they desire him. And why were the Pharisees jealous? Well... Obviously, it's because the women were hanging around with Christ. And then they heard about Golgotha and the Mount of Olives, and they went up on the, and it just got all convoluted. We have another tribe over there where they this one guy takes people on tours of where Noah's Ark is at. Because there's this stone structure that probably is about as wide as this room, and in your wildest imagination it might look like a canoe. And so somebody says, Well, it's not very big, and he says, Well, it only had to hold eight people. So that's how the stories get messed up. And if you don't understand those things, you end up with that syncretism. You end up with that, that belief system. So how are we going to do that? So I spend my time learning language, learning culture, and then we, um, I get ready to start teaching. Now, as a mission, we use something that we, we I guess in the mission we were um, kind of affectionately referred to it as the chronological Bible teaching. Uh, probably a better way of looking at it would be, kind of like this, like foundational Bible teaching. I don't mean this is simplistic. It isn't at all. It's simple. Quite a different thing. We're not talking down to people. We're telling them the whole story, the whole redemptive story. And we do that by starting at the beginning. So uh, what we're doing there in in teaching this way is uh, phase one of our teaching, would would be starting in Genesis 1 or God in eternity past, all the way up to the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we're not teaching everything in the Old Testament, but we are teaching the whole redemptive story from beginning to end. And so uh, this is for unbelievers, people who haven't heard. Now, this is valid for believers, too, because it fills in gaps, things that uh, help people to understand things that they didn't understand before. And at the same time, it also helps correct wrong thinking about who God really is. So uh, phase one is that. Now, after they've been through that phase one and they become believers, we go back through some of that again. Not the whole story, but we talk about certain key points in the Old Testament that are pointing ahead to Christ. As we're teaching through the Old Testament, we're only revealing what's been revealed up to that point because we want to lay those foundations for the coming of Christ. And you'll see some stuff here in a minute. I think it will blow you away. Um, let's see. Um, I was at Dallas Seminary, and I was speaking in their missions class on this. And talking about the whole issue of chronological teaching, this one guy raises his hand. He says, uh, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, sure, that's what we're here for. He says, how many lessons did it take you to get to the Gospel presentation? I said, 68. He goes, 68? He says, don't you think there's something wrong with waiting that long to give people the Gospel? I said, well, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine first. He goes, okay. I says, do you think there's anything wrong with God waiting 4,000 years to give people the Gospel? He goes, man, that's getting below the belt. I says, yeah, yeah, but he says, is it a valid point? And he says, he knew I had him, you know. I says, look, if God didn't rush it, why should I? I says, no, God was laying foundation. I says, take the phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How many assumptions are built into that statement? There's 4,000 years of history wrapped up in that one statement. He says the reason that he was saying it to the people he was saying it to is because they were all Jews. They understood. They had the history. They had the foundational stuff. To say that just about now to a Gentile who had no knowledge of this wouldn't, make a, wouldn't even make any sense. But because they had all of this and they said those things, man, it was understandable. They should have got it right off the bat. And some did. So then phase three is uh, Acts for New Believers. We're laying the historical framework for the epistles. But we're also talking about early church life, what it looked like in the New Testament, how it was exhibiting itself in the, in the first century. Phase four would be the epistles for new believers. And then phases five, six, and seven is now for maturing believers, people who are now are really grounded in their faith and we're starting to get into deeper stuff. But uh, the thing that most people don't realize is that in phase four there, that's where we're going to be phasing out of that work, not phases five, six, and seven. We're long gone by that point. Because the church is the one carrying on the work of the ministry, not us. We're going back to that picture that you saw, where that guy's in there teaching other believers. That's the point. They're the ones that God has entrusted this ministry to also. Just like He entrusted it to us, He entrusts it to them. And we we have no right to be uh, lording it over them and being paternal in that way, but just to continue on this work of the ministry. So let me show you what happens as we're teaching. When we're teaching the Word of God, what we're trying to do is we're, once again, uh, for the last three, let, let me back up just a second. I've moved into the tribe. Cheryl and I have been sitting there for the last four years learning who the Creator is, who, about their world, view of the physical world and the world of spirit beings. And now comes the day where I get to start teaching. All my Christian life, from almost the time I got saved to this point, we're getting ready to start the process of teaching the Word of God. So where do we start? Well, I think you've got an idea of where we start. And so I start not at Genesis one one, but literally before Genesis one one, God in eternity past. And what does knowing that tell us about God? Just that. If you, all you knew about God was that He existed before everything else, what would that tell you about Him? I mean, it would tell. Somebody has something? Oh. I thought I heard somebody. Some of the things it would tell you, it would tell you by nature He has to be eternal because there was nobody to begin Him. He was there. And if He was there before everything else, He is self-existent. He has no need. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need the earth. He doesn't, I was, he doesn't need this uh, ground to walk on. He doesn't need water to drink. I was at a church in Oklahoma City uh, uh, talking about chronological teaching, and somebody said, while you are here, he said, would you mind teaching a Sunday school class? Of, uh, just a Sunday school class. I said, sure. I said, well, before you say yes, he says, you need to know this is going to be kindergarten through fourth grade kids. And I said, oh, okay, all right, well, this ought to be interesting. So I'm sitting there racking my brain, thinking, what do I want to share with these kids? And then I thought, I know what I'm going to do. And so I walked into that class. There's 50 kindergarten through fourth grade children. And all I talked about for 45 minutes was God and eternity past. And you know what I did? I started with day seven. God rested from all his work. And then I progressively started working my way backwards and removing things and removing things and removing things until all there was was God. I says, if God was there before everything else, I says, does he need water to drink? And I said, no. He says, does he need food to eat? And I said, no. I says, does he need people to talk to? I said, no. Does he need uh, ground to walk on? No. Does he need light to see? No. So I said, what does God need? They said, God doesn't need anything. I said, bingo. Not bad for a kindergarten kid. You know? But It's because it was explained to them in a way that they could understand. They understood the implications of a God who existed before everything. He has no needs. He is self-existent. Can you imagine what it must have been like for God in eternity past? Do you think one day God the Father says to God the Son, Son, you know what I'd like for you to do? Oh, wait a minute. You know that, don't you? Ah, never mind. Or the son says to the father, Father, you know what? Oh, wait, you know that one too. I mean, what does an omniscient being say to an omniscient being? I mean, they're just they they don't have to. They were completely content and satisfied just as they were. But that has implications for what's coming after. And so, uh, We started talking about God is all-knowing. Every bit of knowledge there is, God knows. I remember I wrote in a lesson to college kids. I was sending this out to about a thousand college kids. (laughs) I wrote in this one there, I wrote this phrase, I says, God cannot learn. So this girl writes back, she says, are you sure you want to say that? That God cannot learn? So I wrote back four words. I says, what does learning imply? She says, oh, I never thought about that. I said, that's the point. We don't think about those things. Learning implies there's something you don't know. I says, are you willing to say God doesn't know something? She says, not in the world, not in this world. She you know. says, no. She said, but it, it helped her confront a belief that she had about God. And she says, I was wrong. She says, God has no need. So learning that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's om- uh, omnipresent. Of course, I guess there wasn't any present to be omnipresent at that point, but uh, he was there. And uh, so we started talking about what God is like. And somebody said one time, he says, weren't you putting God in a box? I says, yeah, His box. I says, it's just His box doesn't have any sides. You know? That's the problem with God. When you're omni omni anything, his, His has no sides. See, when we talk about God being eternal, being eternal, the eternality of God deals more than with just time. It means everything about God is eternal. It has no beginning or end to it. His grace, His goodness, His wrath, His anger, His uh, knowledge, His holiness. All of it is absolute. There is no limit. You cannot place a limit on any of those aspects of God. So all of a sudden, their view of the Creator just got a lot bigger. Then we start talking about the creation of the spirit beings, all the spirits that have ever existed. Angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim. All of that is just, they're there and Whoa, we never heard this. So this is where the spirits come from. They don't come from underneath the banyan tree. I said, no. God created them. Wow. And created them with great wisdom and beauty and so on and so forth. And then the people are sitting there saying, but Doug, where do the evil spirits come from? We said, guys, we're glad you asked that question. And we talked about how Satan rebelled against God and turned his back on him, And God cast them out and wouldn't allow them to be in his presence anymore and created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. My language helper, when he heard that, he says, has he got a mental problem? I said, well, tell me what you're thinking. He says, Doug, you see that canoe over there? I says, yeah. He says, you saw me make it, didn't you? I said, sure. He says, does my canoe tell me where to go? And you see, he understood the sovereignty of God right then. Not in a decree that God made, but the relationship between the Creator and everything else. As the Creator, He is the owner. He has the right to do with it as he sees fit, but he will not do it in a way that is inconsistent with who he is. And so they see him as the owner, and nothing else has the right to say no. He is who he is. So uh, then we talk about the creation of the physical world. Day one, God creates light. Day two, the firmament. Day three, the dry land and the vegetation. I was at a camp teaching this to 10-year-old kids, and this one kid came up after the lesson. He says, you know, he says, I never saw that before. And I said, what's that? He says, I always knew that plants needed water and air and light and dirt to exist, but I never saw how God created those first before he created the plants. Ah, oh, that's pretty good. I says, What does that tell you about God? He says, God's an orderly God, isn't he? I thought, Wow, man, you know, what do you say out of the mouths of babes they come? Let me tell you something about a young girl said one time, a little girl once said this about God's uh, omnipresence. She said, God is so big that he doesn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> I said, that's good theology. Any way you look at it, how can you say it any clearer than that? But it gets to the meat of the matter, isn't it? There's nowhere you can lose Him. Nowhere you can be out of His presence. So, um, talking about all that, but then the question, oh, then day you know, four, the the sun, the moon, the stars, day five, the fish and the fowl, day six, land animals and man, the woman, everything's good. They look good. They're hunky-dory. They probably look really good-looking people. Great tans. Everything about them is just a unbelievable the food's good everything's great But then they say but doug why do we die why do we get sick why don't our gardens grow well and so on and so so forth they said guys we're glad you asked that question and then we talk about when adam and eve sinned and the curse that was brought on the ground and they're just shaking their heads so that's how it all started there was a time when everything was perfect he says but now we we understand why we never win in the gardens Now we know why these things don't happen the way they should. He says, yeah, it's because of what happened there. And I says, look at how sin causes us to think irrationally. So what's the first thing Adam and Eve did? So they tried to cover themselves from a God who can see everything. Then they tried to hide from a God who's everywhere. Then they tried to lie to a God who knows everything. I says, you see, sin causes us to think irrationally. And the point about this is how can we think rationally? only by the Word of God and understanding what it has to say. So, let's just say for the sake of argument, for the last three and a half years, I've been busting my brains to try and figure all of this stuff. I've sat there and I understand how the, what their view of the Creator is, what their view of the physical world is, and their what well, the spirit beings. And now, after all these years of training, I'm getting ready to teach, and I stand up in front of the group and I say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Does anybody see a problem? If you see a problem, raise your hand. i come kind of sheepishly, but that's all right. No, there's a problem. You know what happens? They pull him over into their system. And if he's in one of their spirit beings, how do you think they're going to treat him? They're going to try and manipulate and control him. You know what? There's a lot of Christian animists in our country who are trying to manipulate God in order to gain some benefit for themselves or to keep themselves from harm. So that's what we're trying to uh, avoid. Um, <clears throat> let me show you a guy here who's not a, this man is not a believer at this point. He's probably about halfway through the teaching, probably up to the Ten Commandments. And I want you to see what he's getting. So here he says, you came and told us about God's talk and now I'm thinking about my sin. Okay, this is a man who's now realized that sin is a personal thing. It's not something that everybody does, it's something he's done. I'm thinking about my sin. What road will God provide so we can get rid of our sin? In other words, I've got this spiritual hot potato in my hands. What am I going to do to get rid of it before I die? He says, if I don't, I'm in deep trouble. So he says, but he knows that God is the one that's going to provide it, and what's the way God's going to do it? So he says, I'm thinking about the one who God promised to save us. So in other words, he's talking about God's provision is not going to be a way, but a person. I'm thinking about the one who God promised to save us. He says, God is so much bigger and stronger than we are. He's the supreme and sovereign one. Can do as he see fit. Will he in his authority or his power mark someone to come here telling him, go and save all these people? In other words, kind of like the king of Nineveh, perhaps God will have mercy on us. He said, but then he asked, but who could come and save us? Who is the one that could come and save us? He says, my thinking is like this. It can't be a man because all men are sinful. Now he's already recognized that every sacrifice had to have three qualities. It had to be perfect, it had to be innocent, and its blood had to be shed. He says, man can shed his blood, but that's the the extent of it. He's neither perfect nor innocent. He says, but then he says this. He says, will it be God himself or does he have a friend he could send down? Now that's pretty amazing for an unsaved man to say something like that, isn't it? But he's been taught from the beginning. He understands that God's righteousness demands a sacrifice, but the sacrifice had to fulfill certain qualities. Why? Because God has the right to set the sacrifice. He has the right to set the qualities. He says, we've heard that Jesus is God's son. Could he be the one? This is the result of previous religious influence that's been in there. They've heard Jesus is God's Son. It made no difference whatsoever. It was completely irrelevant to their lives. But now it's becoming very relevant. Hey, maybe he's the one that God sent down. And then he says, I'm so glad that you came. We will hear it well. Um, I want to, you'll really like this. This is a video of a guy, another guy, about an hour after he got saved. It's a little longer video. But I just want you to see this because this is pretty amazing. I, every time I see it, I just say, wow, this is amazing. So, anyway.
3: In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, Look on.
2: Apew tuturot na nukiyo nas, farkipasais, at olin may ding. Farkipasais na nulibasa lang tin. A diturupasip waron o waray ting set na kaptegen. Akan kan, ya katip laulawek, akan nating isuang suryao, apew ngas na wakako nating tukuturot kating, kating ony ding nating farkipasais, nekanggoy isuang suryao. Parangkuntaan y ding, a Pusrayan Ligma, a Pian Ligma, a Pian Ligma, Pian Ligma, and Sonet Nunukadani told it, it told a Parana La Roson, the Super Laudanuki, Nunukadani told a Parana La Roson, the Super Laudanuki, Diana, Piana, 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 piana Minat, Nalabung, that Tipassi, Inapon, Pina, Nalabung, that na Parana kept that it super Pinat, that's it, Anatoly Pangoy, Iru Maris, the Abisi di pasari di 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 kada ke oni dinga is ke, uh, uh, an- on ser, ser, palan a kanak na yamay ding yamay kanak na kan kanduki jesus kilosi parang kuntan ding parang katao a celebrity la katao ha sularmang ding time na yakalom rai kingma e kusra e pormo momolin sana not kata sup kono na lawlaw ya tarsu e e
1: You got it? Yeah. i tell you what. It's just uh, laying those proper foundational truths, I think, is just really, really big and taking time to do the job well. No matter what we do, we should take the time and lay good foundations and do our jobs well. Listen, in any other realm, this is what we would think of. I mean, if you wanted to go in for LASIK surgery, would you say, uh, doctor, just do it fast. Don't worry about doing it well. Or if you went in for open-heart surgery, you said, don't, uh, you know, just do it as fast as you can i got a golf game this afternoon. No, we wouldn't even think in terms like that. But how often in the Lord's work do we think, let's do it fast rather than taking the time and doing the job well? Believe me, it pays off because you don't spend years looking back on the mess that's back behind you because those foundations are laid. Why? And you don't have to look about back to them because they're generally out in front of you. And they're the ones that are leading the charge and reaching others and so on and so forth get past. I'm going to go. This is a picture. I love this picture. Uh, A friend of mine took that in New Guinea back in the 60s. He used to be our field director. And I look at that picture and I sit there and I think, man, can you imagine taking your family across that bridge on that way? But many times the beginning of that bridge where he came from is where we're starting at. That's the church here where you're training people to start that process. But the end is something, isn't it? I hope that we all have goals, objectives, things that we're looking at saying, Lord, this is what I want to accomplish through you. What is it that's important to you? And I'll do it. Just let me be a part of it. And in our case, we felt tribal people and going and reaching them and evangelizing them is we had to get to the other side of that bridge. And there's the trials and problems along the way. You've got a bridge there with square boards, round boards, broken boards, nails sticking up out of those boards along the way, a rusty cable holding up that bridge. And you're sitting there thinking about getting to the other side and but you're really not thinking about the other side. You're thinking about all the things on the way to the other side. We're looking at that bridge, and we're kind of scared about it. But, you know, a question I want to ask is this. At what point is Christ no longer worth it? At what point along that bridge do we say, You know, Lord, you're worth an awful lot, just not this much. And that's where I hope none of us ever get to. I hope none of you ever get to that point where you say, You know, Lord, you can't use me in this ministry, whatever it is he has for you. I still, I'm 63. I'm 63. I still think I have another language left in me if the Lord would allow it. But the hard part for us was not realizing that the Lord had the right to send us over. It said he had the right to bring us back. And so my job while we're here, be faithful to what we're doing and get as many as we can over there. Why? Because the tribal people don't wait for us. They just die. Other people, Muslims don't wait for us. They just die. Hindus don't wait for us. They just die. And then they wake up in a Christless eternity never having known that there was somebody that could save them. But I thought about this some years later, after I was showing this picture, and, and I'll end with this. There's one thing, I, one other question I'd like to ask you about this picture, and it's this: Would it make any difference to you to know whether Jesus Christ built that bridge or not? Would it make any difference? Because ultimately, if Christ built the bridge, it does. I would take a monster truck out on that bridge and fly across there as it as always as the Autobahn. Because if the Lord built the bridge, then does it make any difference what it looks like? No, these things are in our past so that we trust him, that we always rest in him. I think it was Miles Stanford said one time, he said, failure is brought about by the Holy Spirit to teach us to have no confidence in the flesh. (laughs) And That's a good one. We'll fail along the way, but so what? So does everybody else. There hadn't been a human alive that hasn't, Paul included. He failed, he's the worst of sinners. So, listen, I don't know what the Lord has for each and every one of you. I trust that whatever it is, you'll be obedient to Him. It's worth it. You don't have to worry about whether the Lord's going to take care of you. He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. And you know what? There's nowhere that you can lose Him. And there's nowhere that His enemies can hide from Him. So we can just rest in the Lord. That's the whole point of what Hebrews talks about. Labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. And what is that Rest that we're confident that God means what He says. And I I tell you, of all the attributes of God, there's one I think that really has uh, become more and more precious to me as I've got older, and that is that He never changes. So I can count on Him to be the same every day, every minute, every hour of eternity. He will never change. He will stay God, and I can trust in that. So let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I'm so grateful to you for these folks here. They've got a great program here to start the process of training people to, for the work of the ministry and that's the whole point of Ephesians 4 is that you gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for what? for the work uh, for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth from this day forward will no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they line way to deceive. If you're God, then we're not, and we can rest in that. Thank you, Father, for your kindness, your patience, and your love for us, and for just allowing us to be part of your plan. We'll thank you in Jesus' name.